0: Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. So, uh, if you have not, if you've been with us, Overall, I guess the past couple of weeks we've been—we uh, started a new series in the book of First Samuel. We're going to be going through First and Second Samuel, but right now we're in, starting out in First Samuel. And uh, you know, it's interesting. Like, w- like we—we we didn't meet last week, um, so like I want to kind of give you a little—you know—there's going to be a little bit of me kind of refreshing you a little bit. Um, but before we get there, so as you're turning to First Samuel chapter four, uh, there's—I have a question for you now. Uh, this question, like, don't answer out loud. Okay, I just want you to kind of reflect on what your answer would be. If I was to ask you the simple question of, who is God? What would your answer be? If I was to ask you, who is God? What would your answer be? Now, for a lot of people, they're gonna, they would describe God in, in, a, in a multitude of different ways. They would say, oh, he's creator, or he is uh savior, or he's, uh, my, uh, the, he's my heavenly father, and, and all these different things. And those are, that's all great. Because, But here's the thing I want to uh, help you understand tonight. Uh, that the, your understanding of who God is is the most important thing about you. That who God is... And your understanding of who God is is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me. And not only that, but it's now, okay, do I have a proper understanding of who God is? And then it's like, okay, do I, have I placed my faith? Am I trusting in the God of the Bible? Or am I trusting in something else? See, so tonight we're going to be talking about this idea of misplaced faith. What does it look like to have misplaced our faith? When I say misplaced our faith, here's what I mean by that. I'm talking about this idea of many of us, we have, you know, okay, like there's something that you're trusting in right now. Right now, for instance, everyone in this room that is sitting down in a chair, you're trusting in that chair, right? Right? Everybody is is trusting in that chair. You're trusting it's going to hold you up, and, and and you didn't think twice about it. You you put your full weight into that chair, and and right now, bigger than that, and it, co- it comes to your life. There is something that you are trusting in to give you purpose. There's something you're trusting in to give you meaning. There's something you're trusting in when it comes to your when it comes to eternity, right? We talk about what is it that you have placed your faith in, and and I want you to know that if you have placed your faith, or if you've placed your trust in anything other than the God of the Bible, I want you to know that you have misplaced faith. Misplaced faith. Now, I'll get a little bit of context of where we're at in 1 Samuel. If you remember, last time we met, we talked about... Samuel kind of growing up in the tabernacle, and he was growing up under the the priest at the time, whose name was Eli. Eli had Eli had two sons. What were the two sons' names? Hophni and Phineas. Good job. All right. So Hophni and Phineas is uh, were the two sons of Eli. They were serving as priests in the tabernacle, and what we know about them, based off the passage, is telling us that they were worthless men. That they de- that they despised God. They despised the sacrifices of God, and they were they were they were unfaithful to God when it came to the way that they were handling their position, right? We talked about what it looked like a uh, fake religion. That's what we talked about last time. We talked about this idea of many of us walking around with fake religion where outwardly, whatever it may look this way, but really inwardly, all the religious stuff we're doing is all fake, and then in that story we have God speaking a word of judgment to Eli and to his two sons saying that ultimately he was going to destroy uh, Hophni and Phinehas because of their sin and 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 he was going to end uh, he was going to end Eli's line of being the priest and and all these different things and there's like a lot of judgment in that and 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 we kind of so we have that week if I encourage you if you want if you haven't heard it or if you're just like I don't remember I want to hear it again you can uh, you can listen to the sermon on you can go YouTube Central students, uh, and you can find the you can find the sermon on YouTube. You can listen to it on Spotify or also Apple Podcasts. All right? so you can listen to it. You can find it there. Um, but that's kind of the context of where we're at. So we're kind of uh, we're kind of at the end. So after that, we jump into First Samuel chapter four. We're going to kind of look at this idea of misplaced faith. We're going to ask a couple things. We're going to see what what are the signs that you have that you and I have misplaced our faith, and what are the serious consequences of misplacing our faith. But before we can get into that, I want us to, first I just want us to read the passage. It's only 11 verses. I want us to read the passage tonight. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It says this, and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were uh, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened to us befo- Has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a great slaughter, a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, had died. Now... Before we kind of jump into the rest of our passage tonight, I want to say, there's, you, you saw something come up a couple times in there. It's this idea of the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of God. Now, I'm going to, without getting into too much detail, uh, the Ark of the Covenant for the people of Israel was the most sacred possession that they had. It was, a, it was a chest that, uh, that essentially, it symbolized the, God's throne amongst his people. It symbolized the presence of God amongst the people. It was kept in the most holy place in the tabernacle. After that, it was kept in the most holy place in the temple. No one saw it other than the high priest when he went in to offer sacrifices. It was God's presence amongst his people. It's very important to keep that in mind as we kind of continue on in our passage tonight. So again, we're talking about this idea of misplaced faith. So first thing we're going to see, though, is the source of misplaced faith. What is the source of misplaced faith? faith? What, What exactly is it that causes us to place our faith in lesser things? What is it that causes us to place our faith in these lesser things? As you study your Old Testament, you'll see that the people of Israel are constantly giving themselves over to idol worship. I don't know if you've if you spent any time reading your Old Testament, you'll see this. That The people of Israel are incredibly faithless when it comes to worshiping God. They worship all these false gods, worship all of these idols, and continually they're found, uh, they're found to be worshiping other gods giving themselves over to these uh, other gods. And ultimately, this is like the thing that you see like throughout their entire history. Now, it's very easy for us to read something like this, to read many of the shortcomings of the Israelites and look at them with a mindset that says this. How could you do that? Right? It's very easy for all of us. I find myself doing this. When you read some of the things that the people of Israel do and you're just like, you, you want to just like slap them, right? He's like, what is wrong with you? This is the God that brought you through the Red Sea. This is the God that did all of this for you. Like, what is your problem? But I want you to understand something: that that we need that the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, serves many purposes. But there's two real main purposes that I want us to keep in mind. The first thing I want you to keep in mind is this: that the Old Testament serves to do this. It helps us to. It shows us who God is. The Old Testament shows us who God is. We learn of the attributes of God all throughout the Old Testament. We learn of his power and of his justice. We learn of his grace and his mercy. We learn of his faithfulness to keep his promises, right, and so on and so forth. We learn a lot about who God is. But not only do we learn about who, a lot about who God is, there's another purpose that the Old Testament serves. is also shows us who we are. Shows us who you and I are. You see, the sinfulness of the people of Israel, in many ways, acts as a mirror for us to look into and see ourselves. See, oftentimes it's very hard for you and I to be able to identify sin in our own lives. right? We often don't judge ourselves accurately. But you know the sin that we're that we're often the most blind to is our own. I find that really interesting. That it's very easy for us to recognize the sins of others, but we struggle to recognize our own sins. And what you see is that the people of Israel act as a mirror for us, not for us to be able to say, "Well, it's a good thing I'm not like them." And they act as a mirror for us to be able to see, "No, I am just as sinful as they are. I'm just I, I have the same tendency." to worship idols. I have the same tendency to, uh, to doubt God's promises for me. I have the same tendency to forget all the incredible things that God has done for me. I am just as incapable of keeping the commands of God as they are. We see our own tendency to desire to be like the culture around us, just like the people of Israel desire to be like the nations around them, which we'll see in a couple weeks. And I say that to say this, that you and I constantly do exactly what the people of Israel do. We are no different. And tonight we're going to see that, we will, that you and I often will place our faith in the wrong things. Just like the people of Israel place their faith in the wrong things here, it's important for us to know that we are so prone to do this too. And the reason is quite simple, is that we're all sinful people. That We're sinners. We were, born, we were born in sin, as Scripture tells us. And, we're, and, and if we're honest, we don't even realize the fact that we do the sins that, that we see the people of Israel do. We don't even realize the fact that so many of us, maybe you think you are convinced that you are truly trusting in the God of the Bible, but if you really, really, really get down into it, you're actually not. So what we desperately need... Is one, now we see, okay, the source of our misplaced faith is the fact that we're sinful people. And all of us are prone to do this. No matter no matter who you are, whether you're a pastor or whether you're, you're a student, whether you're a leader, doesn't matter. All of us are prone to do this. So what we desperately need to do is be able to diagnose, we need to diagnose our misplaced faith. We need to be able to see, okay, where is it? How can I know that I have placed my faith in lesser things? And we can learn how to do that by observing what happens here in First Samuel chapter 4. So with that, we get to our second point, which is the longest point, and it is this. We have the source of misplaced faith. second thing we see is the signs of misplaced faith. What are the signs of misplaced faith? If you read, go back to the passage, starting in verse 2. It says, The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And the people had uh, came to the camp. The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Right away, we see something interesting. We see that the people of Israel go into battle against the Philistines. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the fact that they're even, having to battle, they're, even, they're even having to battle against the Philistines in the first place is due to their disobedience generations earlier. But they go up to, in battle against the Philistines, and they're defeated. They are defeated in battle. And their first reaction is to ask, why? Why has the Lord defeated us? Why is this? Because up to this point in Israel's history, defeat in battle was pretty rare. They didn't lose in battle very often. Israel doesn't lose in battle very often, but when they do, there is always a reason that they lose. I want you to understand that. There is always a reason the people of Israel lose in battle in the Old Testament when they do. And it goes back to God's covenant with Israel that you see or, uh, earlier in the Levitical law. I, and I told you this last time uh, that we gathered together. I told you that some of those parts of the Bible that can be kind of a struggle to read and a struggle to understand. I want you to know that it's very important that you take time to read those things. Because if you don't, you're going to miss a significant portion of what the scriptures are trying to teach us. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 26, you see that ultimately God gives the people of Israel the law. And then he gives them a series of blesses for obeying the law. If you bless the law, this is, or if you keep the law, this is how I will bless you. And if you disobey me, if you go against what I've commanded you, then there are curses that are associated with that. And of the curses, of the blessings and curses, when they are obedient to God, God promises that they will experience military victory. They will defeat their enemies. And when they are disobedient to God's commands, one of the curses is that they will experience defeat. That they will not be able to stand against their enemies. Leviticus 26, 17 says, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. See, as as part of God's covenant with Israel, one of the curses for disobedience was that they will not experience military victory. You see this also in Joshua chapter 1. When God comes to Joshua and he tells them to obey the words that I have commanded you, do not turn from them to the right or to the left, so that you may have success in the land. So from very early on, we see that the people's success— and their prosperity is undoubtedly linked to their faithfulness, to the covenant that God made with them. You with me? You tracking with me? All right. So their, 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 their prosperity and their success in the land is linked to their ability to keep the covenant that God has made with them. We see this in Joshua. We see it a full display throughout the book of Judges. What happens when the people of Israel go against God? God allows them to be taken over. And then they are miserable for a long time. And then they cry out to God. And God raises up a judge and delivers them. And then they experience prosperity. And then what happens? The cycle goes back. They go against God. And then it just repeats. So the elders of Israel are right when they attribute their defeat to the sovereignty of God. Do you notice that? They say, why has the Lord defeated us? They didn't say like, hey, what strategy didn't work? They didn't say, hey, what, no, what they say is, why has God allowed this? So one thing I want us to understand is that they are right in attributing their defeat to the sovereignty of God. But they don't seem to understand why God has done this. If you remember where we what we talked about two weeks ago, the people of Israel are in the midst of extreme idolatry. You'll see later on in chapter seven when uh, the Ark of the Covenant is returned to the people of Israel, it was the first thing that Samuel commands them to do. Samuel commands them to rid themselves of their idol worship, turn away from these idols, and turn to God. They don't seem to understand that. Right away, we see the problem. Because if they took their covenant with God seriously, they would not have to ask the question, Why has God allowed this to happen? They would already know. Certainly, they would understand what the problem is. And here, we quickly see things turn south. What they do in response to their defeat is that they don't repent, they they don't identify the problem. What they do is this they say, They don't seek God, they don't pray to Him, they don't repent. They say, This, hey, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant. Here's what we'll do. We'll go get the Ark, and we'll bring that into battle with us. And then because we've brought the Ark with us, then God has to give us victory. They decide to go grab the Ark of the Covenant and bring that into battle with them. In essence, they get really superstitious. They get really superstitious. They think, hey, this is what we'll do. You know, I imagine there's one guy who's like, hey, like, just trust me, right? Trust me. I know what to do here. I got it. I, I know what we'll do. We'll go get the ark. And they're like, yo, that, like, do you hear Dave? They're like, yeah, Dave came up with a great idea. We'll go get the ark. See, they begin to look at God as, as a good luck charm. This goes back to what I said earlier. Remember, how would you define God. For many, they would identify, many people would, would kind of identify God as this genie in a bottle where, you know what, I rub the lamp and then and, and I ask him for things and he gives them to me. Some would look at him kind of like a Santa Claus, like, all right, I sit on his lap once a year or every once in a while. I tell him the things that I want and hopefully if I'm good enough, he'll give me what I want. Here, the people of Israel treat God like a good luck charm. They assume that if they do all the right religious activity, then God will have to respond to them the way that they want. And this brings us to the first to our first sign of misplaced faith. You could tell that you have misplaced your faith because, one, you have an incorrect view of God. You have an incorrect view of God. Now, when we talk about misplaced faith, I want us to be very clear that we can oftentimes misplace our faith by placing it in people or placing our trust and our confidence and our hope and our faith in uh, money or relationships or the things that this world promises. But in particular, what I think is important for us to see is that most often you find that people misplace their faith because they place their faith in a God that is not the God of the Bible, but it is a God of their own imagination. It is a God that they have made up in their minds. They have an idea of what God is like in their minds, and they place their faith in that God that they have constructed with their minds, and inevitably they have placed their faith in a God that is not the true God. You with me? Now, here's what I want you to know, that it doesn't require a perfect knowledge of God to be saved. I don't want us to to get that confused, right? I don't want us to think that, hey, like, I don't know God fully, so like, no, that's not what I mean. What I'm talking about is people who have a wrong understanding of who he is. There's a difference between an incomplete understanding and a wrong understanding. You with me? See, the people of Israel thought that they could simply whip out the Ark of the Covenant, and it would secure them victory. All I got to do is, hey, all right, guys, hold on. Crisis is going on. I know what to do. Let me whip out God. And that'll give me the victory that we want. And ultimately, the reason that they thought this boils down to the fact that they have a wrong view of who God is. They believe that God worked for them. That God was the God of Israel, that God worked for them. They assumed that they could manipulate God to do their will. In their minds, God existed to bless Israel. That's why he exists. That's why he's here. That's why he's got our back. Is because God exists to bless them. And when he failed to bless them, then something had to have been off. Clearly, maybe he needed to be reminded of that or, or whatever it is. So they resort to superstitious means to get God to respond the way that they want. Their faith was in a God that was ultimately like them. This is where many people are today. Perhaps this is where you are in this room. If you were to go around and ask people who God is, what they would do is inevitably, they would describe to you a God that is simply a more powerful version of themselves. He likes the things that I like. He wants the things that I want in the world. He, uh, he, he acts like me. He thinks like me. He loves the things that I love. And, but he's just a more powerful version. Now, we may never admit it. We may never admit it, but we do this all the time when it comes to God. We do this all the time. Many people think that if they simply slap God on something in their life, they, they, they just take God and they slap the God sticker, the God label on it, that God will have to bless it. That God's gonna bless it and God's gonna make it work. They spend all of their time on social media making sure that they look just like the world, posting the things that the world posts and dressing the way that the world dresses and, and doing all these things that look like the world. But in their bio, it says John 3, 16, and they're like, hey, hashtag blessed. And we laugh, but this is how many people view their lives. I'm sure many of you in this room do this. I just slap the Jesus label on it and no matter what it is, whether it blesses God or not, God has to bless it. For many of these people, these kinds of people, God is ultimately a good luck charm for them. He's the lucky rabbit foot. He's the thing that gives them good luck. Here's another example. Let's say you're in a relationship. See, yeah, now everyone listens, right? Let's say you're in a relationship. And let's just be honest, it's just unhealthy. Not even to say that like you're both not Christians. Maybe, maybe you both love the Lord, but it's just not right. It's not God's will for you. It's not God's desire for you. But you say in your mind, no, I want God to be, I want God to be glorified through this relationship. And you think that because you have that mindset, then it means that God has to bless it. No, it doesn't. Well, I want, God to be, I want God to be glorified in this relationship. It doesn't have to be a dating relationship. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's whatever it may be. But I, got, I want God to be glorified in this, and because of that, he has to make it work. Never mind the fact that it's probably just not his will for you. Well, God has to set his will aside in favor of mine. Is everybody paying attention? All right, I see a lot of like talking and stuff like that. You had plenty of time before. You'll have plenty of time after right now. Just lean in with me. Or maybe this is what we do. We resort to prayer and we ask God to give us something that we want, even though if we're honest, it's clearly not in his design for our life. So many of us find ourselves in this position where we say, if I simply keep God first, then God will give me the things that I want. And what we do is we take verses and we rip them out of their context and we make them say what we want them to say so that we can make it seem like, well, as long as I just keep God first, then He'll have to give me what I want. Here's a perfect example. People say this, delight yourself in the Lord and He will grant you the desires of your heart. Oh, okay, so if I just delight myself in God, He'll give me the desires of my heart, but Let's read the, what what does that verse say? If you delight yourself in God, God will give you the things that you delight in, which would be God. See how that works? That's not a promise that God's going to give you whatever you want. It's that God is going to make you want the right things and then thus give it to you. So, what we do is we rip verses out of context. We make them say what we want them to say. We'll take these verses and and make them do whatever they want. See, we have this idea, and again, we would never say this. But in our minds, if we're truly, truly honest, we have this mindset God exists to bless me. God exists to bless me. That's why if I don't like the music, whether it glorifies Him or not, it's not about Him. It's about me. It's about if I like the music. It's about if I like the style of preaching. It's about if I like this or I like that. That's why people jump from church to church to church to church. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes God calls you from one church to another church. That's how I got to Central in the first place. But I wanna encourage you, maybe, 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 God has you where he has you, not so you can judge the church and see if it meets all of your desires, but he has you where he has you so that you can bring the change that you wish you could see. And don't get me wrong, I know some of you don't go to Central, and don't get me wrong, I would love to see you more often. But you should never take lightly what it means to change churches. You should never take that lightly. But we have this idea that God exists to bless me. And I want you to know that you should be very careful. Because it's very likely that the God you have placed your faith in doesn't exist. Because the God that exists to bless you doesn't exist. The God that exists to make you happy d- is not real. And if that's the God you've placed your faith in, I'm sorry, you've placed your faith in a God that's not real. The first sign, right, is that you have a faulty view of God. The second sign, another sign that you've misplaced your faith is this, that you see religious activity as a substitute for obedience. I'm going to say that again. You see religious activity as a substitute for obedience. Some of you are like, what do you mean, Mike? Well, let's look. The people of Israel take the most sacred religious symbol they have. The 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 symbol of the throne of God and His presence amongst His people. They take it out of the holy place that it belongs, and they seek to bring it into the battle with them in hopes that it's going to secure them the victory. Undoubtedly, I'm sure as they're doing this, they're thinking of all the times that the Ark of the Covenant was gone before the people of Israel and it did bring them victory. I'm sure they're thinking of the time where Israel crossed the Jordan River and the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the river and when they did this, the, ri- excuse me, the river stopped up and as long as the priests held the Ark there, then the water stopped up and the people could cross over on dry land. Maybe they're thinking of the time where there uh, generations before them where the people of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho. And when they marched around the walls of Jericho, what went before them? The Ark of the Covenant went before them. And the walls came tumbling down, and and God gave them a miraculous victory. Surely they're thinking, man, if we just do what they used to do, then God has to bless us, right? If we just go back to what, if we just do what they did, then God has to give us the victory. What they're, trying, what they're doing is they're trying to find a way to force God to act. They're seeking to force God's hand. They're looking pat- at these past things. and See, the people of Israel take the Ark of the Covenant. Think about this. The most holy object in all of Israel and they seek to use it as a means to coerce God into action. What a dangerous thought that they think they could do that. They take a good thing. Now some of us are like, all right, what does this have to do with me? Well, let's kind of simplify what's going on here and then let's apply it, right? It's like they take a good thing that is meant to honor God and help them and they use it as a means to try to force God to do their will. Now God has to act the way that we want because we did this thing. Now, I know you're probably thinking, man, like, when do I ever do that? When do I ever do that? Or or when are there times where I take a good thing meant for God's glory and and my good, and I use it in a manipulative way? Well, let me ask you this. What does your prayer life look like? What does your prayer life look like? Now, I want to be very, very clear. We are invited to take our requests to God. Okay? Okay. That we are, are, the the Bible tells us over and over again that we should take the things that we take our desires, take the things that we want, and we should ask God. There is nothing off limits that you can ask God. I want you to take take rest and peace in that. That there is nothing off limits that you can ask God. You can ask God for anything, and here's the thing: I think that you should. I think you should ask God for the things that you want. We're invited to do so. However, we should never get it twisted and think that prayer is a means that we forced God to do our bidding. I prayed, so now God has to give me what I want. Again, we absolutely ask God for things, but be honest with yourself. I want you to truly, truly be honest with yourself. Perhaps you find yourself doing this when you pray. Perhaps you find yourself, like you pray for something, and you try to use all the right words. You try to use all the right words. And you, and you pray a lot. And hoping that if you use the right combination of the right words, and the right amount of repetition, and the, if, you, if you do it right, then God will give you what you want. That if I just do it this way, and and when we do this, what it does, you want to know what it does? It takes all the joy of prayer and it strips it. Now prayer is no longer a thing that we get to enjoy doing because we got to do it right i got to make sure I'm saying the right words. I've got to make sure that got to make sure that I am doing the right things i got to make sure that i, that I do not stutter. i got to make sure, and this is why when we talk about praying in front of other people, so many times people freak out. They don't want to do it. Now, I get it. Sometimes it can, you know, it can be nerve-wracking praying in front of other people, but other people do it because they're like, I don't know how. Like, if you don't know how, it's probably because you're overcomplicating it. Just talk to the Lord. But when we feel we have to, I have to get the right, you know, the right combination of these and thou's and, and holies and molies and all of these different things, right? Like, then I, you know, I have to do that so that God will give me what I want. We absolutely ask God for things, but we gotta be careful that we don't seek to use prayers as a means to manipulate God. Matthew 6, 7. And when you pray... Jesus saying this. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. What is Jesus saying is don't think that just because you repeat things over and over again and you have this long, drawn-out prayer that now God hears you. No, don't think that. I want you to ask yourself this question. Don't answer out loud. Ask yourself this question, truly and genuinely and honestly. How much of your prayer life is you seeking to bend God to your will, and how much of your prayer life is you asking God to bend you to his? I'm going to ask that again. How much of your prayer life is you trying to bend God to your will, And how much of your prayer life is you asking God to bend you to his? Because if you're praying rightly and you're praying about a certain thing for a long time, what you'll find is that oftentimes your prayers will begin to change. And your prayers will begin to change more into God's will for the situation rather than yours. But we don't want that we don't want to submit our will. Or perhaps you do these you, you do this, you do things for God simply so that He will in turn do things for you. You do things for God so that He will in turn do things for you, which ultimately means that you're just doing them for you. You're not really doing it for God. right? You serve. You serve because you think that by doing so, you're racking up points with God that you can redeem later. Right? We treat God like a rewards program. I'll be honest with you. I love rewards programs. One that I use a lot is Chick-fil-A. I use Chick-fil-A rewards all the time. Tonight, when, we, when a lot of us go to Chick-fil-A, I want you to bank on it. I'm using rewards for that Chick-fil-A. I will even, and God forgive me if this is wrong, I will offer to pay for someone so that I can get the rewards points for it. And what I know is that if I purchase Chick-fil-A enough, I'll eventually get enough points that I can redeem something I want and not have to pay for it. And a lot of us look at our walk with God that way. That if I do this enough, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church. I'm going to serve. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead Bible study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing on stage. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this and do this. And eventually, if I do that enough, I think that that will put me in a position where I can then ask God for things, and he'll give it to me. I will rack up enough rewards points. I want to rack up points that I can use later. Here's a warning that I want to give to you. Don't treat your relationship with God as transactional. Don't treat your relationship with God as transactional. I do this for God, and then he does this for me. Please know that God does bless obedience. I want you to know that. I I fully believe that God does bless obedience. And God disciplines us when we sin. God disciplines us when we sin. He blesses us when we obey. But we must never think that God owes us a blessing because we acted religiously. God owes me a blessing. Because I did this. I acted religiously. See, when you begin to look at your walk with God, like the people of Israel are looking at it here, you begin to not only determine when God will act, but you also are now the one that determines what it looks like for God to act correctly. And what you have done is you have placed yourself in the position of God. I determine what God does and I determine what is right and what is wrong and what happens is this you're the one that's sovereign because you're the one that determines when God acts and you're the one that determines when God gives gifts and when he doesn't you take the role of God on yourself as if God has to ask you permission see now if the people of Israel would just take a moment they would realize that their defeat is because of their idolatry If they would just take a moment, they would realize their their defeat was because of their sin. It's because they wandered from God. Here's what I want you to know. If you go back to Leviticus, if you go back to the blessings and the curses, after God lists out these curses for disobedience, later on in Leviticus 26, he tells them this. Verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity, Essentially, God's saying, but if they repent, if they repent, I'll remember my covenant with them, and I won't bring this calamity on them. What God is saying is that if they repent... I will turn from my, I will relent from my anger and my wrath and my judgment and my condemnation on them. And I will not bring it about on them. I will remember my covenant with them. So here's the thing. What does God want from Israel here? Israel is defeated in battle. What does God want? God, he, he wants them to repent. It's simple. He wants them to repent and return to him. He doesn't want all the religious gallivanting. He doesn't want them bringing the Ark of the Covenant and blowing trumpets. He doesn't want them doing all of this fake showmanship. He wants repentance and obedience. And many of you need to understand this that when you stray from God or when you sin or when you fall short, God doesn't want your fake show. He wants repentance and obedience. That's it. Don't think you're racking up rewards points with God because you raise your hand in worship. And don't think that you're not getting rewards points because you don't. You know what I'm trying to say? I was, you know, rewards points, that was bad. You know, what I'm trying, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Don't think that you're lesser than. And don't think that you're greater than. God wants repentance. Psalm 51, this is when David, when he sins, against, when he sins with Bathsheba and he, and he uh, commits adultery and he has her husband Uriah murdered and these terrible things, and when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet and he repents, In Psalm 51, this is his prayer of repentance and he says this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. When David's asking God to forgive him, he says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. What is David saying here? Is that when you sin, you know what God wants? God wants a heart that is repentant. He doesn't want your show. He doesn't want the, the religious parade. What God wants from Israel here is repentance. And And that's what he wants from us when we sin. Repent in humility and come back to him. Don't try to religion your way out of things. Don't try to religion your way into right standing with God. What does the scripture tell us over and over again? That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here's what I want to ask you. If, if I were to ask you, are you right with God? Again, don't answer out loud. If I were to ask you, are you right with God? What would you say? This is a serious, serious question. If I were to ask you, are you right with God? What would you say? Some of you, maybe you'd say, I don't know. Maybe some of you would say yes. Here's the question. If you say yes, here's what I want to ask you. How do you know? How do you know? or I should say this why are you right with god why are you right with god now if your reason for why you are confident that you are right with god and you start to answer that by you start to spout off a bunch of religious activity you've missed what i have just said i'm right with god because i prayed a prayer I, I prayed this prayer. I'm right with God because I was baptized. I'm right with God because my family brings me to church. I'm right with God because I read my Bible every day. I'm right with God because of this, because I do this, because I do this. That's not what God wants. All of that activity, apart from a heart that is repentant of sin, means nothing. Means Nothing. Are you going to tell me about the confidence you have in salvation because of a prayer you prayed when you were younger or because you were baptized? No, the only thing we put our confidence in is the blood of Jesus and his resurrection. That's what my confidence is in. If it's not Jesus, I have nothing else. I have nothing else. I trust that. I know I am saved because God has promised me that if I trust in his righteousness, not mine, then I am assured a right standing with him. Now, the ark is brought into the camp. The ark is brought into the camp, and the people of Israel get hype. They start losing it, right? 1 Samuel 4, 4 and 5. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the ark. That should be their first clue that something's wrong. Who's carrying the ark? And as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. There's a few interesting things here, but for the sake of time, I'm only going to try and hit, I'm only going to hit really one. The people of Israel are getting hype, and it's all ultimately meaningless because their excitement was not grounded in truth but their excitement was grounded ultimately in rebellion, and their excitement was grounded in the fact that they were trying to assert their own actions as a means for how they could be right with God. They were seeking to be right with God by religious activity, in other words, their own deeds. And in doing so, here's the thing, they're trying to be made right with God through their own deeds, and in doing so, they're actually bringing more judgment on themselves. because what are they doing? They're essentially saying God, what you said isn't actually what it is. This is what it is. If you're trying to establish a right standing with God because of all excuse me, because of all your religious activity, here's what you're actually saying to God. God, the blood of Jesus is great for others, but it's worthless to me because I can get it without it. What do you do? You are heaping more judgment on yourself. What you think is bringing you freedom, or well, what Israel thought was bringing them freedom is actually bringing them condemnation. This is, uh, there's, there's a book. If you've been to uh, SLU 301, uh, you know, you, you've heard of this gentleman. If you are going to SLU 301 at some point, you will hear this gentleman. It's a gentleman named John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a uh, was a Christian uh preacher and leader uh, in the 1600s, and John Bunyan wrote a book that is widely regarded as one of the greatest pieces of Christian literature outside of the Bible, and it is a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> ooh, ooh. The Pilgrim's Progress, and what The Pilgrim's Progress is, is it, it, allegorizes, it allegorizes the life of the Christian, and it tells the life of the Christian in the form of a story of a pilgrimage. Of the story of a pilgrim on a journey. On a journey to his home heaven country. And the story begins with Christian carrying this massive burden on his back. That's literally the person's name, Christian. He carries, he's carrying this massive burden on his back. And, and all he wants is to be relieved of this burden. He seeks to be relieved of this burden. He seeks to have this burden taken off of him. So he comes across a man named Evangelist who tells him where to go in order to have this burden removed. And he takes off. He leaves everything. He leaves his wife. He leaves his kids. He leaves his hometown. He leaves everything. It's just him and this burden. And he goes, and and on his way, he comes across a lot of different dangers and, and toils and hardships. And along the way, he encounters a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells Christian of another way to get the burden off of his back. Another way to get this burden off of his back. And what he, he comes across he says, "Like, why do you have this burden on your back? And he's like, well, I, I got it because I read this book and, 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 I, and, and, and I just want to get it off. And, and he goes, so where are you going? He goes, I'm going to get it off. And, and Mr. Worldly Wise Man says, why are you going this way? You can go this way and get the burden off your back. So Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells Christian what to do. Because Christian's like, well, that sounds great. And basically, what, he tells him, hey, you can get this burden off your back without going through all of these hardships. And Christian's like, interested. And he's like, okay, well, well, how? Tell me, where do I go? And Mr. Worldly Wise Man points Christian and tells him to go to the town of morality. Go to the town of morality, and there he will meet a man named Legality, or Legalist. And he'll tell you how to get the burden off your back. So Christian heads that way, but when he finds, what he finds is that as he strives to get to morality, the burden on his back gets heavier and heavier. The more he strives to get to this town of morality, to speak to this man of legality, to get this burden off his back, it just gets heavier and heavier until he runs across the evangelist again. An evangelist rebukes Christian for getting off the path that he's supposed to be on, but then he lovingly points him back to in the right direction, and he warns Christian about Mr. Worldly Wise Man, and he speaks of him this way. Now, I'm going to kind of translate it a little bit, because it's written in old 1600s English. All right? This is essentially what he says. He says, I will, show, I will now show you who it was that deceived you, and who it was also that he is sending you to. The man that met you is one worldly wise man. And rightly is he called, partly because he savors the doctrine of this world. Therefore he always goes to the town of morality to church. And partly because he loves that doctrine the best, for it saves him best from the cross. See, while repentance is what is demanded of us, many of us would rather turn to religious morality because it spares us the pain of having to endure looking at our own sin. I would rather just do the moral Christian thing than have to face the reality of my sin, to face the cross. Anything that could spare me from having to endure the ugly reality of my sin. But all this does, all this does is widen the divide between us and God. And all it does is take the burden that you feel on your shoulders and it makes it heavier. Because you'll never be moral enough. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be legalistic enough. All it does is increase the burden rather than lift it. Which brings us to our last point. It's the seriousness of misplaced faith. As you read the rest of the passage, what happens? They take the ark into battle and they get destroyed. 30,000 men of Israel die. Interesting, when the, the Philistines hear of this, what's going on in the camp, they're kind of freaking out. They're like, yo, what's going on? What I find amazing is in this passage, they talk about this and they say, uh, they say, woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Now, why do they say that? Because Israel only acknowledges one God. Here's the thing, the seriousness of misplaced faith, when we place our faith in lesser things, here's what it does. It sends a bad message to the world that the Philistines couldn't tell that Israel only worshiped one God because from their perspective, they worshiped many. They worshiped many. Some of you wonder why you don't have a positive impact on others for the kingdom of God. And it's probably because from their perspective, you don't worship gods any differently than they do. What's the difference? When you trust in either a God of your own imagination or you trust in the things of this world, you are sending a message to the world that the God that you, that you supposedly profess is not worth your sole allegiance. We condemn people by proclaiming a misplaced faith. here's the, the most serious thing and this is the last thing I want to say and I had every plan to not go long. I had every plan. But, I'll tell you this and this is, um, I'm, I'm shirking responsibility. There's a meeting that usually is on Mondays and it was pushed to Tuesday because of Labor Day. It was a two hour meeting and my hardest pr- thing, my, my biggest difficulty with sermon prep is not finding out what to say, it's finding out what not to say. So when I go long, it's usually because I haven't had a ton of time to edit out a bunch of stuff. So you get the raw, uncut version, and that's why I went long, so it's not my fault. Before Corbin makes a meme about it. (laughs) But here's the thing. Here's the most serious, here's the, the number one serious thing when it comes to misplaced faith is that this. Misplaced faith cannot save Misplaced faith cannot save you. The slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelites were killed. Now I want you to put yourself in this position. You're marching towards battle convinced that you're going to win. Convinced. Convinced you're right. Only to die. I'm going to be honest with you. My big, and I want everyone to look at me. I know you're taking notes and that's awesome, but like for just right now, my biggest fear is that you would be convinced of a salvation you do not have. That is my biggest fear for you, is that you would be convinced that you're marching through life on your way to victory. Only to have a misplaced faith that cannot save you. And the sad part is, is that you don't even know it. And my goal, when I preach hard, which this week's not that hard, two weeks ago, a little harder. When I preach hard, my goal is not to make anyone feel bad. My goal is not to to beat anybody up. My goal is to shake you to the point to where if you don't have a right relationship with God, I want you to at least know it. I don't wanna make anyone who is a Christian doubt their salvation, but if you're not a Christian, I want to make you doubt it. I want you to ask the question, am I actually saved? 30,000 Israelites were killed and this happens because they had a misplaced faith that ultimately let them down when it mattered the most and when it matters the most for you is not when times get difficult when it matters the most for you is when you stand before God and your mom won't stand with you your dad won't stand with you your cousins won't stand with you your pastor won't stand with you your friends won't stand with you it is you and God and what will you have to say where was your faith Was your faith in the God that's standing before you? Or was it in a God that you made up in your mind? I want us to go back to that idea of the rewards points. See, we don't earn the right to ask God for things. That right was given to us and it was purchased for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is where our our, our faith should go. And in the person and in the work of Jesus. Don't think you're saved because of a prayer you prayed. Allow that prayer to be an overflow of the faith that you have.